0: Today's homily is on Galatians 3, starting in verse uh, 23, going through chapter 4. And if you want to turn there, go ahead. I'm going to have the JBV version on the screen, and that's the Justin Boyer version that you will not find uh, in any of your Bibles. And I'm not trying to manipulate the Word of God. Um, there was just some things that were better said in one translation at a certain part, and then in another translation, something I felt was more clear. And so. I go through them and I look through the original language as best as I can and be like, yeah, that, that can make sense. Let's put that together put that together like that. I'm just going to check to make sure my clicker works this time. Yes. Okay, so we are wrapping up on our series on Sonship this morning. It was a two-week series that then became a four-week series. So in review, we've talked about um, the parable of the prodigal son about that there's two lost sons in the parable and a, and a compassionate father. And we saw how there is this, uh, this way that we can mistakenly see ourselves and see God as either he is our employer, which then makes us his slaves, or we can see him as a father that is either dead or has abandoned us, making us orphans. But neither of those things are true. God is father, but he is present. He has not abandoned us. And while we are, um, uh, like DJ was saying, servants and friends of the Lord, we are also his children by Jesus Christ. So we went through Luke 15. And then we also talked about this idea of divine adoption and how when Paul uses it in the scripture, uh, the language of sonship and adoption, there are truths that were taken from the original culture. One of those truths was, is that when we come under the authority and the reign of Jesus, we are under a new authority with benefits and privileges that we did not have before. But this divine adoption is also countercultural because in Paul's day, in the Greco-Roman world, usually adoption was not uh, this thing that was inclusive and unearned. It was usually just for males and just of a certain age that had already proven themselves, and then they would be adopted in the family so that they could take the family line and continue it. And so adoption back in that day was a little bit self-serving. But God isn't needy of us in any way. And so his embrace of us, his favor towards us is completely because of his grace and because of his own holy character. Faithfulness is more about what God has done for us and not what we have done for God. And then we also, uh, we compared Jesus to Jonah. We we looked about how the Father desires this restoration and relationship and partnership, and this comes uniquely through the Son of God, Jesus. That when you and I are prone to run away, or you and I are prone to have resentful anger towards God for his compassion or for his truth, Jesus manifested God's redeeming affection through the cross. By the grace of God, Jesus tasted the wages of sin for us, which is death so that ultimately we wouldn't. Jesus destroyed the fear of death that enslaved us. Jesus faithfully and mercifully dealt with the justice that needed to be enacted because of our sins, because of our lusts, because of our gluttony, because of our self-righteousness, because of our self-preservation, because of our unlove, because of our lives, because of our worship of idols, yada, yada, yada. Fill in the blank. And Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. This is the kind of love that the Father has given us. And yet, while we are all under God's sovereignty, we are all free agents where we make choices of who to follow and of what to do, with choices about how to respond to the Father's love and how we will fight the battle of truth in our inner being of what words and what narratives and messages we submit to in our culture. On the screen here are a bunch of sayings that are the response to the same question. Who cares? I know, why wouldn't he? Are you sure? Yeah, he does. And the singular statement that these are all responses to is this depending on where you're at this morning, that God loves you. So in honesty, how would you answer this question today, just between you and the Lord? That the truth stated that God loves you, what does that cause in response? Do you care that God loves you? Are you surprised that God loves you? Are you bored with the fact that God loves you? And then in truth, how does your answer align with the truth and the spirit of the gospel of Jesus Christ? So let's briefly walk through the text today, starting in Galatians chapter 3. Would you pray, pray with me? Father, we pray that you would open up your word to us and that even as I'm speaking, Holy Spirit, that you would be speaking to each one of us. And that my words, uh, where they are just uh, rubbish, would fall away. And that your words and your heart would come through that would both penetrate our mind and also our being. And so we ask you to do what you do. Your word um, is for correction and for instruction. And to tell us about who you are and who we are in you, God. So in the places that we don't understand today, let us understand the one thing that you love us and you desire um, our freedom, and our freedom means your glory. So may you be glorified through your word today, and may you be glorified through our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, if you're following along in your text, this isn't going to be word for word in any of your Bibles, but just, let's just do this here. So before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in productive custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. This is the Apostle Paul talking. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. For you are all sons of God through faith. In Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. So the the Apostle Paul is deeply concerned about the faith of the church in Galatia. And why? Because where Paul came along originally with the message of Christ crucified and how it deals with our brokenness and how it reestablishes this connection with God, other teachers, the Judaizers, came in and were saying, well, Cornerstone, if you really want to be on in the inner circle with God, if you really want to get right with God and be saved, you also need to follow the Mosaic law. And so the Apostle Paul had a tough job ahead of him, right? He doesn't want to completely discard the words and the commandments of God, but yet there is this need for them to be seen in light of the supremacy of Christ, which changes everything. So Paul uses an illustration and says how the law was like our guardian for a time. That this word could be translated as child, tender, schoolmaster. This guardian's responsibility was to exercise supervision over the child's safety and conduct. A more modern word for us might be a babysitter. So students and children in the back, I need you to look at the screen for a second. Do you know who uh, that character is up there? Eden, you're not allowed to answer because you're my daughter and you already know this. Does anybody remember what character this is or what movie this is from? Toby? Well, yes. So do you remember what do you remember what her name is? So this is Carrie McKee, and what was she in the movie The Incredibles? She was a babysitter. And so if you're not familiar with the movie in The Incredibles, It's a superhero animated movie. That's one of the Boyer's favorite movies. And you should watch it, even if you don't like Pixar movies. And so this was the babysitter. And her job was to babysit this cute little kid. And Toby, what was his name? Jack-Jack. And he's pretty cute, right? Except for the fact that he has some problems. He has some deep-seated problems. So Carrie's this babysitter of this little guy, Jack-Jack. But Jack-Jack has 17 powers that because he's just a baby, are destructive and could hurt him or others. He doesn't know how to control himself, nor what's good or bad for him. These powers include laser eyes, bursting into flames, turning into a demonic monster, and walking through walls. Before Christ came, we needed the law. We needed a babysitter because we were this crazy baby jack-jack that needed to be controlled and restricted so that the hurt and pain we could inflict on others and ourselves could be contained to some degree. And it was good for what it was. It was good. But Christ has now come into the world and into our lives And we no longer need that guardian, that babysitter, at least in that way. Is she still something that is around and that has something to contribute? Yes. But we are now united with Christ. And where the babysitter may have needed to be uh, doing her thing in order to, like, say, separate the children so the children didn't get at each other and kill one another and harm one another, Those that are in Christ are actually called to be one. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, males or females. In Christ, there is no longer blacks or whites, no longer Republicans or Democrats, no longer millennials or those baby boomers, no longer Pentecostals or Anabaptists those things are still around but they do not define status they do not define popularity they do not define power and they do not define hierarchy in the household of god onward into the next section the beginning of chapter 4 think of it this way as long as an heir is under age he is no different from a slave although he owns the whole estate They have to obey their guardians, which is actually a different Greek word. It's not the same Greek word. It's more so like a caretaker until the person comes of age. They have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father set. And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual elements of this world. But when the right time came... God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own sons and daughters. And because we are his sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave but God's own son, God's own daughter. And since you are his son, his daughter, God has made you his heir. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. So Christian thinker Andy Crouch says that every idol makes two simple and extravagant promises. And we can see this, and I've mentioned this before in Genesis uh, 3. And the promise that idols make or spiritual forces that are evil or dark make is this, that you shall not surely die And that you shall be like God. You shall not surely die, and you shall be like God. The basic spiritual elements of this world are not the principles that are redemptive and good and woven into the fabric of God's creation, they are of the world, as Paul talks about it here. That means one way or another, what their purpose is or what their end goal is, is to somehow stir up or to appeal to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the pride of life. And these elements act like leeches. Has anybody had, ever had a leech on them before? Really? I'm so glad I've never had that before. Yeah, I'm sorry, Niles. I watched, a, does anybody remember the movie, A Stand By Me? It was like an 80s movie where the boys go on uh, this, this adventure and they go into this pool and they get out and they're covered with leeches. That is one of my nightmares. So these elements, these worldly spiritual uh, elements, sometimes act like leeches. They love to join themselves to things that in a proper place are good. And then they either pervert them or misuse them to manipulate others. They suck the life out of them. So, two of these worldly spiritual elements that we've mentioned before are magic and mammon. And by magic, I'm not talking about the fictitious wizardry world that plays out in the good versus evil stories of Narnia or Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings. I remember talking to one of my friends about it at one point, and he's a Christian and more prophetic nature, and he runs this uh, nonprofit elsewhere. And he kind of laughed, and it's also kind of a jab in the side, uh, but he kind of laughed saying, like, you know, there's more legitimate witchcraft in local churches than there is in any of the hundreds and thousands of pages of those books. And so the magic definition that I am talking about is about power without relationship. Magic is power without relationship. And mammon is abundance without dependence. And these things are often in partnership together. So we see the worldly spiritual element of magic taking place in the temptation of Christ. One of the ways the accuser, Satan, tried to tempt Jesus was through the word of God, was through trying to manipulate the Bible in order to get Jesus to do something that he shouldn't do. One of the worldly spiritual elements, magic, was trying to misuse the Bible as a weapon that would give power without relationship. And I'm glad we don't do that anymore. We see the worldly spiritual element of mammon taking place in the story of Simon the sorcerer. Simon amazed people with his sorcery and he was even called the great power of God. And then he heard the good news of Jesus Christ about his life and his death and his resurrection. He believed, he was baptized, but then he saw the Holy Spirit working in the apostles, and he wanted to buy that ability. He wanted to buy the spirit. The worldly spiritual element of mammon was trying to take the spirit and make it a product that could be attained without the need for personal connection. And if you need a more succinct modern word, those things were 2,000 years ago. We don't necessarily see sorcerers walking around the street, although at the end of this month we might. And uh, of course, nobody misuses the Bible anymore. So that's, uh, I don't know how we can apply that. But just as I've said before, and we've talked about many times over the years, one of the very distinct ways that I believe Magic and Mammon work together is in the way we use our digital devices, in the way of cultural addiction to social media and social networking in both our business and personal worlds. And I have said that multiple times. It's one of Justin's soapboxes about Digital Gnosticism, there goes Justin again on his soapbox. But it's real, and I believe it's real. And so one of the ways magic, this idea of power without relationship, shows up is in our social media threads and how we interact with one another through them. And one of the ways of mammon, as far as abundance of information, yet with no dependence on God, is seen, is definitely there too. But for the Galatians, the basic spiritual element of this world that was leeching onto something. It was leeching onto the law, making it something that it was not. But thank God that there is a rescue available that comes through Jesus, as is talked about in this passage. Because where every single one of us here in this room haven't, didn't, and wouldn't do what was needed to be fully human like we are designed to be, to fully follow God, the creator, Jesus did. Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. And rather than submitting to the slavery of magic, he stayed connected to God. And instead of submitting to the slavery of mammon, he depended on his father. And even when death was on the line, he did this. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, making offering for sin, not because he had sin in him, but for the sin of others to bring many sons and daughters into glory. Thanks be to God. And then our last section for today. Before you knew God, you were slaves to so-called gods that do not even exist. So now that you know God, or should I say, now that God knows you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual principles of this world. You are trying to earn favor with God, and this is specifically for the Galatians, you are trying to earn favor with God by observing certain days or months or seasons or years. I fear for you. I fear for you, church. Perhaps all my hard work with you Was for nothing. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. The apostle Paul would not write this letter if he did not have a grave concern that the people were being persuaded that Jesus wasn't and isn't enough. To paraphrase Paul's words at the beginning of chapter one Christ alone is everything, Christ plus something else is perversion. Don't buy into the lie that growing up in the faith means becoming more spiritually self-reliant. Maturity in the Christian faith is never about growing out of your connection with Jesus. Henry Nowen, who has done a lot of uh, writing about sonship, was reflecting on this idea of the slave mentality that we see that comes up over and over again in these passages. And he he writes this about, about coming home, about staying where God dwells about listening to the voice of truth and love, he says that that was the journey that he most feared because he knew that God was a jealous lover who wanted every part of him all the time. God is a jealous lover that wants every part of me all the time. When would I be ready to accept that kind of love? So love sneaks into this passage in a subtle way in verse nine, and I, and I highlighted it up there. Now that you know God, or should I say now that God knows you, the syntax of the original language says this. It says that while it is important that we must seek true knowledge of the true God, worshiping God for who he is, allowing God to be who God will be even when we don't like it, a more important thing then us knowing God is God knowing us. So think about that in a second. A more important thing than us knowing God is God knowing us. And that kind of settles weird for me. The analytical part of my mind, the biblical uh, analysis, wants to be like, when I hear this phrase, God knows you, to be like, duh. Like, that's not anything new. Like, that's stating the obvious, Paul. Not you, Paul, Paul the Apostle. Like, I know my Bible, I know the Psalms, and how before a word is on my tongue, or before I speak it, the Lord knows it completely. I know what Jesus said when he talks about prayer, and that before I even ask, God knows what I'm going to ask before I ask it. And that's true. But there is something else going on here. Because, Justin... The same psalms that exalt the omniscience, the all-knowingness of God, also have us crying out an invitation to the Lord, saying, Search me and know my heart. This knowing isn't a statement of theological fact, but a welcoming of existential presence, of welcoming of personal presence, of God, And furthermore, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, Jesus says, will enter the kingdom of heaven just because what you did was fantastic. Just because you prophesied, just because there were miracles, just because there were mighty works done in the name of Jesus. Jesus says to those evildoers, to us evildoers, depart from me. I never knew you. It is the one who does the will of the Father that will enter the kingdom of heaven. And so, does that mean obedience? Yes. But listen to this also, Cornerstone. It is also the will of God for you to be known. It is the will of God for you to be known. Being known by God speaks of pursuit and requires openness to him. We are not data information machines. We are persons, and God is a person. And there is something special in the exchange between people, between persons, in that type of oneness, in the intent of intimacy. Intimacy in the English language can be broken down to mean an innermost announcement. So the things that are deepest inside of you, that are so personal, intimacy is taking those things and announcing them outward. Intimacy doesn't have an autopilot. That's counterintuitive. And Jim Eikenberry, did did, your wife say that? that intimacy doesn't have an autopilot. I feel like I've heard it somewhere. Okay. I feel like I stole that line from somewhere and I can't remember. Anybody else make that up? You'll take it, Matt. You'll, Matt will claim that. <laughs> intimacy doesn't have an autopilot. We know personally that God is with us when we gather corporately, Right? So why do we then ask the Lord Jesus to come? Why then do we say, Holy Spirit, come? We know personally that God knows our sins, so why do we confess them? And it's because we are opening up ourselves to the reality that already is and living into the grace and truth that is already there. And that is something different than besides a cold, hard theological fact. There's something intimate to that. So I'm going to ask DJ to come back up and DJ is going to sing a song over us as we prepare to go to the communion table or as we sit in the presence of one another and in the presence of Lord and consider his word for us today. Cornerstone, as we go to the communion table, may you be in continual pursuit of God wherever you are in your life and may that pursuit direct how you love your family and your friends, but also your neighbors and your enemies. We are getting into distinct enemy territory, especially in the next coming weeks, on our land as elections come up. We, as the children of God, are called to live out of a different place than the world, out of a different basic spiritual element or principle. Let us remember that as we go to the table. But most of all, remember that God is always pursuing you. God is always pursuing us. God is always trying to make a way, always looking for us, even when we are far off. So carry with you today the truth that God loves you. And let your honest response to that truth be met with God's transforming grace. So how would you respond to that today? God loves you. Is it because you think you deserve God's love? Do you feel like God's love is not important? Do you feel like you already know that? What's the point of saying that? None of those things align with the spirit and the word of the scriptures. So may you be honest before the Lord during this communion time, but may you also receive the truth that he has spoken. The communion table is for those who believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave, defeating the power of evil. And we proclaim this death until he returns living by his spirit now and looking forward to the renewal of all things. Amen.